It's something we need in times of crisis. The situation in Tonga remains unclear tonight, with the Pacific nation almost in a communication blackout following a volcanic eruption that triggered a tsunami. Well, in the words of its mayor, Gabrielle is the most catastrophic weather event to hit Wairua in living memory. In times of deprivation, New Zealand has one of the highest levels of homelessness in the OECD, with more than 25,000 households needing a place to live. One in eight children are living in material hardship. That's according to the first set of comprehensive figures released since the government laid out its child poverty reduction targets. And in times of sickness. Auckland Starship Hospital seeing a record number of children being treated for respiratory illnesses. Kiwis with advanced breast cancer are dying twice as fast as those in comparable countries like Australia. When everything turns to custard and we've lost our homes, our livelihoods and even our hope, charities are often the glue that holds us together. But there's a charitable trust that's doing its bit to raise the spirits of our youth. Support groups say they're busier than they've ever been making sure families are fed this Christmas. Kiwis are uh, the second most generous nation per capita globally, uh, behind only the United States. So we are a very generous group of people. But while it's normally the beneficiaries of charity organisations who are struggling, the charities themselves have also faced their fair share of challenges in recent years. First, there was COVID. Two years of lockdowns and people off the streets put big dents in charities that depend on collecting money in person. And then there were questions raised about where donation money is actually going. Some Hawke's Bay residents are feeling frustrated by the length of time it's taking to receive some of the donated money from charities. And now we have a cost of living crisis. So is there enough money coming in? And how can we trust charities to direct those donations to where they needed most? Kia ora, I'm Wilhelmina Shrimpton, and today on The Detail, we take a look at charities. We launched March this year, but it's been probably about 20 years in the making. Paul Brown is the man behind the Emergency Alliance, an umbrella agency that brings together eight New Zealand-based international humanitarian charities. The idea is that in times of crisis, they can pull resources together and reduce admin costs, meaning more of every dollar donated reaches the front line. Paul tells me it all stemmed from the response to the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. A lot of agencies responded, raised a lot of money from helping Kiwis, and I think post that emergency, we all agreed that we need to play better and be more coordinated when we respond at the emergency. And we also talked about, well, maybe we should behave a bit better raising the money. And I was in the sector, I'd just started in the sector at the time, and we keep kicking this can down the road saying, well, we'll do that next emergency. And lo and behold, the next emergency would arise, and we'd say, actually, next time we need to be a little bit better coordinated. And we just kept procrastinating and pushing this further out until about... 18 months ago, a good colleague of mine, Josie Bagani, who was the executive director of uh, the umbrella body called the Council for International Development, said, Paul, you've come out of the sector, you know the space well, see if you can try and drag this concept that we've kicked around for too long, see if you can actually scope it out and see if it's feasible, which we did. So um, after scoping it and saying, yes, it's feasible, it's worth doing, we then built this platform and launched March this year. So it's it's been a... A long journey, but the finish line has been pretty quick too. Mm, and it seems like definitely a bit of a, a, a no-brainer action. It, it makes total sense. Yep. And there were a couple of keywords that just 
my little ears just pricked up just then when you were saying it. You said the, the behaviour around the, the, the gathering of, of finances and, and donations. What do you mean in terms of, of that? What, what were some of the, well, I guess, bad patterns? Having been in the sector, whenever there's a big bump or a big emergency or a big crisis, as humanitarian organisations, we want to respond. But over time, we got the behaviours that probably weren't that constructive is that we realised that the more noise we made, we convinced ourselves the more money we'd raise. And what ensued then was it was a race to the bottom, see who could spend the much, most money to raise the most money. And the public were getting quite tired of this and saying, why don't you be putting your energies towards the emergency rather than trying to attract eyeballs on TV or listeners or advertise online? And for too long, I think the sector ignored those cues and thought, no, no, we think we're good. We all had pride in our badges, our logos, our our agencies that we were, were leading, and we sort of ignored the, the donors who were getting increasingly turned off and increasingly frustrated until there was an epiphany a few years ago saying, you know, this has gone on for too long. Other countries have these platforms. Maybe we need to think about working better together, and that's what's, that's what's popped out. And it's really interesting hearing that because you don't think of the administrative side of things. You think with charity that every platform that a charity advertises on, therefore, would be a platform that would have been offered up for free. Talk to me about what you actually need to spend in order to get back. Because you'd assume that these platforms would, would say, this is a free space Correct. because it's for a good cause. Absolutely. And in an ideal world, we strike up relationships through Emergency Alliance. The fact that we've now got all these agencies working as one entity, you think we'd be able to benefit from free advertising. And we do. We're getting some great support from various media outlets out there. But prior to that, we would have to buy advertising space. And... That's inventory. That's that's. There's a commercial equation that goes with that for the advertiser. Um, so we would have to buy space, and often trying to get the best space when there's the most eyeballs or the most listeners at peak time is expensive. Was it ever discounted? It is absolutely. So we we, we should be grateful and, and thank, whether it be the Googles, the online, the, the TV networks, or, or the radio stations who do support us. So we do get that benefit, but it still comes at a cost. What we're trying to do at Emergency Alliance is say, how do we minimise that cost by working together as a collaboration? And how do we remove this competitive element? Because the competitive element wasn't helping us. It was actually, sounds a bit crass, but we knew there was money being left on the table because we were turning so many people off from emergencies. Which leads me into thinking, there are so many charities Mm -hmm. out there. Do you think there are too many charities out there? Is it not better to just have one that maybe services, you know, all of the islands, one that services all of the cancer patients who need support. You know, would it would that make more sense? Two answers there, and yes, there are far too many charities. I think per capita, New Zealand's probably got the highest amount of uh, charities in the world, which is not a really good proud badge to wear. But in saying that, most charities, and it's all very becoming generalisations, but most charities are doing good work. So there is a there is a need for those charities. They are servicing beneficiaries, whether they be people, animals, the environment. So they wouldn't be in existence if there wasn't that need. So yes, the charities are needed. Can charities be more effective and efficient? Absolutely. So that's what we're trying to push towards. Mm. And it's interesting to talk about competition when you think about the charity space, because it seems like if you think of charity, it's for the greater good. It shouldn't be a competitive thing. But I guess, like you say, there are so many out there and they're all battling for donations. Correct. Yeah. Mm. And that's what sort of kicked this off, is that we were battling and competing to, in some cases, for survival. And, and you look at, we talked before about how many charities are in New Zealand. A lot are struggling. And the way they 
fight or push off that struggle is to compete for, you know, to fundraise. And the margins are getting thinner and you think, well, we don't exist just to fundraise, we exist for impact. So are our energies misplaced or misaligned? So in terms of those costings before the alliance mm-hmm. was established, I don't know if, if you could pluck a figure out of the sky, but in terms of, you know, per dollar, what percentage of each dollar would be going towards advertising to give us a sense of, you know, the breakdown of costs? Well, there's no one sort of prescriptive number that says it should be X or it should be Y. But most charitable organisations, you know, we work off a very rough rule of thumb that says if we're not remitting or sending or expending 70 cents in every dollar that we raise, we're not that efficient. So we've tried to push that even further. That in itself is dangerous because it's very easy to latch on that one figure and say, well, if your your margins are more than 30%, therefore you're not effective. And it becomes a very, very blunt binary that people look at and say, well, I'll only like that charity if they retain less than that. I'd hate that to become the the sort of the, the proxy for what means impact and what doesn't because different organisations do different things. And so as it stands right now, instead of eight of you having eight lots of advertising costs, eight lots of ad space, you've now just got one, but it's dispersed across the eight organisations. Exactly. And what we know from donors who've been telling us, it takes that choice away from them because if you're at home either watching TV or online and you see a series of ads for different agencies pop up, you're left with Sophie's choice. You don't know whether the blue one's better than the red one or the green one or or whatever colour they may be. We're removing that confusion. We make it easy. We say, if you give to us a couple of things, we'll decide where it goes best based on those agencies who are responding in that region or have got the technical expertise. Secondly, and this is what we're also finding a lot of donors like, we won't pester you again. So we only ask for money around significant emergencies. We won't then ring you up and say, thanks for the donation, let's give us some more. Um, We're just there for the emergency and that's it. So a lot of donors are getting quite tired of fundraising ad nauseum. So uh, that's not our model. And how do you decide where it goes? Is it up to those member agencies to sort of pitch the need that they have? Or do you look at it and and break it down and go, okay, well, here's where this particular area is struggling the most. This is more suited to one. So if we go back a step, there's emergencies happening all the time. And I've now got on my phone about four different apps that alert me to a whole manner of different events, man-made natural disasters occurring all around the clock. We have three pretty clear criteria that determines whether we should launch what we call a joint appeal. So the first thing is we look, and it sounds very mercenary in the cold light of day, we, we ask, is that emergency affecting more than 5,000 people in terms of have people 5,000 people or more lost their homes or lost their lives? And if it's a yes, we then ask the second question, is that event happening in a part of the world where we've got members working? And if it's a yes, we then make a somewhat subjective call, but the board who make this decision have got collectively over 100 years' experience working in the sector, they can then make this decision, which is the third criteria, which asks, do we think this event will stay around long enough in the news media and will the Kiwi public support it enough that warrants launching a joint appeal? If we get three yeses to those questions, we then launch an appeal and we ask our members, who of you are responding to, in our case more recently, who's working in Gaza? Israel's military forces expanded its ground activities in Gaza as it prepares for a full-scale ground invasion. More than 1,400 people have been killed in Israel. Palestinian health officials say more than 8,000 have been killed in Gaza. And then from there, we've got eight members. Only four of our members are currently working in Gaza. Um, So we'll say, well, what are you doing on the day to get us an indication of the scale of what they'll be doing? And we all know from emergencies 
whether it be minutes after the eruption or the flood or the cyclone or even when conflict breaks out, you don't really know the detail of the response. You're giving a very quick summation of what, what agencies think they'll do. So over the passage of time, we can get a much more richer information and determine where the money goes. Because I think there's been a bit more scrutiny cast over charities, particularly recently. I think the one example that springs to mind is the Hawke's Bay floods. There were all these donations going to Red Cross and people on the ground were going, that's great, but we haven't actually seen the money yet. Do you think there's more of that scepticism among the public? I think there is. I think there's more to come too. So we're seeing the Charities Commission, through its reporting and and regulation, getting a lot tighter. But let's go back a step. This is certainly not, we can't claim this as our IP. We've been benefiting from our colleagues in Australia, Canada, Ireland, UK have had this platform, these platforms, for over 60 years, in the case of Britain, with what they call the Disasters Emergency Committee. So we're lucky that we can leverage best practice from around the world. But certainly what you're saying, yes, I think donors are getting more sophisticated, they're getting more informed, they're also getting more misinformed. So we think it's our role to actually be cut through that um, and provide true and accurate information and, and, and really help make that choice easier for donors if they want to make a donation. And how much of a problem is that when it plays into that level of trust? Because you've got misinformation, you've got the rise of scams. Is that making your job harder as well? I think the public in general are getting more sophisticated with purchasing or donating or whatever that buying decision may be. So I think whatever the category, everyone's facing that. But certainly in, in, the, in the donating sector, in the charitable sector, that, that's, that is a concern. We need to be transparent, we need to be clear and that's one of our values is transparency to, to help to say and educate sounds patronised but help inform the public and part of it is also reporting on what we do with that money and you referred to what was happening in Hawke's Bay recently we've learned from our colleagues overseas that more and more of their energy is actually going into reporting post event in terms of I think there's a tendency and that has been in the past maybe we've created this to really dumb down what emergencies are, it's turning up handing out water, putting up a tent, handing out food and going. That's not emergency response. So it's our duty, I think, to actually keep informing the public about what good humanitarian response practice looks like. And that could also include allocating money to prevent the next emergency. So it may not be just immediate response. It's the recovery, it's the disaster risk reduction, and also you know, working backwards to make sure that we minimise the, um, the disruption and, and destruction from future emergencies. And what's the strategy around that for, for educating people and making people more aware? Because you also are conscious of the admin dollars that are going into these charity Correct. charitable efforts. And I guess that's the whole part, the integral part of building up the trust. So we have a very, what we hope is a pragmatic and simple reporting mechanism that will ask our members who receive money from appeals to report three monthly, six monthly, and then 12 months after the emergency. So, and again, you're right, we don't want to put a huge administrative burden on those, those charities that are doing good work. So we don't want this reporting to, to be obstructive or obtrusive and, and too difficult. It's a fairly high-level report that we can then synthesise from all the reports we get in and then replay that back to the public in, a, in hopefully a digestible report. The eight charities that Emergency Alliance currently has under its umbrella are the Adventist Development and Relief Agency, Anglican Missions, Caritas, Christian Blind Mission, Christian World Service, Habitat for Humanity, the Leprosy Mission and Tear Fund. They're all Christian organisations. New Zealand has another seven international humanitarian agencies based here which aren't part of the group. According to financial reports, three of the eight forked out more than a million dollars on engagement and promotion in the last year. 
including the Catholic charity Caritas, which provides aid and development throughout the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Chief Executive Mina Antonio tells me Caritas was one of the last members to sign up, needing to do its due diligence first. I remember signing on the dotted line uh, five, ten minutes before the deadline. But it was about um, also who else was involved, the members that were signed up. We really believed in the vision that Paul was, I guess, um, endorsing. And and I think what, for me, uh, what really uh, was, was very um, important to me was is that our partner in Australia, Caritas Australia, that they are a member of their alliance. Yeah, that was one of the, the factors for us as well. Um, and we had some real, you know, questions around us becoming involved. It's an investment for a charity um, for us, so we take that very seriously. Um, the commitment for five years was a, was a big commitment for us. But we did our due diligence and I was happy with that. So it was, yeah, it was really a case of it coming to the top of my to-do list. So would this make it easier for you to compete with other charities outside of the Alliance or does this add another layer of complexity and it means you still have to compete within the Alliance as well? No, I think that this is where the, the Alliance actually makes that easier. It takes that away. For one thing, it, it also reduces confusion for donors because we know that donors... Um, definitely from our data is that some of our donors are multiple givers, so they're giving to a whole lot of different charities as well as our own. And what the um, Emergency Alliance does is that it's one sort of funnel, so it makes so it reduces that confusion for um, for them, so that they're not having to have this what you would call a, a choice fatigue about my gosh, this is so overwhelming. Um, who do I give to? So if there's one crisis. The emergency alliance is in there. Uh, it's a it's a mechanism that donors can go. Actually, rather than having to choose, I can put this in here and know that it's going to that emergent, you know, to that particular crisis or that emergency that that appeal has been stood up for. What also makes sense, of course, is is cutting down administrative costs and sharing that load across these eight agencies. How much in admin costs? Has this taken out and how much do you think it will take out moving into the future? Well, look, in terms of our um, admin costs, I mean, that that sort of already factored in the investment that, you know, our membership fee. So so for us, it, it doesn't add administrative burden. In fact, it lessens it for us because the Alliance appeal, when that is stood up, um, our appeals then are... I guess a, a bit more muted. So we sort of front the alliance appeal when that is on, so to speak, so that our own appeals in-house is not competing. It also means that we organise ourselves so that when the appeal is on, our administration is directed to the emergency appeal. And then when the emergency appeal is then um, turned off, then we stand up our own. So that's that's theoretically how it works. Mm. Sure, sure. And obviously making those savings means more dollars given to the front line, which is beneficial for, for everyone in need. Yeah, it's it's also about our organisation and, and actually being efficient and being um, affected. So it's a more effective way that I believe um, about how we can meet the needs of people, um, of our vulnerable and poor communities that we serve. So it's around efficiencies and around being more effective in that way.
Do you think with that as well that this would take out any hesitation that some people may have to, to make donations? Do you think that, that this would remove some of that hesitation knowing that that admin cost is shared? Absolutely. And also it makes, I guess, that landscape cleaner when you've got that one appeal that is fronting in those situations. Emergency Alliance hopes to sign more charities on in the coming months. But with so many out there already, are there even enough dollars to go around? Paul Brown told me it seems there are, and that despite the cost of living crisis, donations have been rolling in. We're very blessed here in New Zealand the fact that New Zealand is known as a very charitable country. Kiwis give lots of money to lots of different causes, so we're very, very fortunate in that regard. The cost of living crisis runs two ways in terms of we often say that when um, times are tough, people have got higher levels of empathy and actually give more. So it's quite counterintuitive to people say, well, we're poor, therefore we can't give. We find often the people who are suffering the most actually give the most. So there's a whole lot of paradox tied up in that too. So it, it's not purely economic. It's If you, if you plotted it, would, there'd be a certain lag indicator, I think, if you plotted against uh, the way the economy is travelling. The cost of living also hasn't been much of a hurdle for Caritas. But Mina Antonio says the charity still has its fair share of challenges. There are things that have also happened, uh, you know, since since COVID, the disestablishment of checks. And throughout COVID, where we had the restricted numbers attending um, church, you know, um, a lot of our funds, um, donations also come through um, the collections at churches, especially around Easter, which is what we call our Lenten appeal. So that has a massive effect on donations. But then, you know, you also then have this competing um, crisis. So the outbreak of uh, Ukraine um, war, then you had the eruption in Tonga. So these events that sort of coincide with our biggest fundraising appeal does have an effect. Interesting what you say about, and I know we talked about the competition thing, you know, you're you're competing for donation dollars in the day-to-day running of things, but you're actually also competing in terms of um, the number of crises that are coming up. Like you say, Ukraine, we've got Gaza at the moment. These are things that come out of the blue. They're, they're not always expected. Can that really throw things sometimes when there is a major crisis? Yeah, well, it does throw things. However, because this is our space, we are emergency response. We always have to be in a state of readiness. We're also ready for these for these events as well. And, you know, the reality is, is that we shouldn't expect that we're going to get a clear run for these things. So we design that into our appeals. We design that into our expectations. We design that into our targets that things are just going to prop up. I mean, you know, disasters don't, you know, they're not timed and, you know, they're not scheduled. So we should be expecting that there is going to be something that happens. That's it for today. I'm Wilhelmina Shrimpton. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Phil Bench and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to Paul Brown and Mina Antonio. Matewa. Matewa.